there's this reliance on clinicians and diagnosis. And that wasn't something we saw in the gay community. Like get, clinicians thought we were mental illness. And so we knew that they didn't really understand homosexuality or knew what they were talking about when it comes to us. But for some reason, the autistic community puts a lot of trust and faith in the ability of these clinicians to define them and a lot of them are neurotypical. It's like people from the outside looking in. I don't know where their authority comes from to tell us about ourselves more than we ourselves know about ourselves. Now, August this year, I had a very interesting debate on the Stealth Aspies Twitter account over the absolute versus relative use of the term bestability. This has been a bugbear of mine since I started, the idea that a lot of us in the community will fight to the death to have autism known only as a disorder and disability. People like myself see an argument for it being relative to individuals. And I was very happy to be defeated. I was very happy to actually retweet uh, and to promote uh, an opposite argument to my own in these dialogues, which happened around August. And I recommend you go and have a look at them, actually. Now, during uh, this debate, I made the acquaintance of Mr. Jeff Fullington, a.k.a. Primal Hex, uh, who's a very interesting man. And I had the honour of talking to him online and doing a podcast. Now, Jeff, his occasion culture, Seattle-based gay autism advocate. Jeff is working on virtual community building and all-round neurodiversity support. His current project is a Discord server called The Red Door. He's also working on a website, blog, and podcasting platform that other autistic people will be able to use to share their work. And I have to warn you right now, an awful lot of this conversation takes place around absolutely wonderful music of the late 70s, early 80s. He's such a tasteful man. Over to you, Jeff. Well, yeah, Jeff, we met because um, we run a Twitter exchange and we were uh, defending one another. But then we both conceded because the people we we're talking to on Twitter made a very important point, I think, that in order to get support and understanding in the United States of America, there has to be disability involved. And I realized this was more important than anything. So I, I completely went with it. And uh, I don't know their situations. I think that might be true for some autistic people, but I don't think it applies to everyone. And especially adults, like unless yeah. you're trying to get certain services or disability. So they were trying to make a blanket statement that every single person that's autistic must identify as disability or somehow they're not truly being authentically autistic. But I don't find that to be the case at all, even in the United States. I was a disability advocate for several years. And even within that community, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a disability. It could be, but it, but it wasn't a necessity for it to be. Mm, that's interesting. They made a very, there were two people, and they, were, they were very brave. And they made a very, um, very nice straightforward argument and I, I didn't want to um, 
to in any way diminish what they were doing. So I, I retweeted them and everything. But uh, as as you can see, you know, we did make a collection of statements that were perfect, were sound statements. I think are, so. Yeah. It was the dogmatism that I was more reacting against than anything else. The the black and white blanket, all autistics must are therefore X. Because there's there's so much diversity within the community. Like I'm just, I'm skeptical of any kind of yeah. really rigid statement about autistic people in general. Mm, I absolutely agree with you. It doesn't work like that. There's so many personalities because we're so um, we've got such self integrity, which is another phrase you never hear around autistics, is it? Oh no, <laughs> self integrity. God, that's so true. Yeah, I like that. The idea of reversing some of the the terms that are currently used and spinning them around into something more positive, like rigidity is something we get accused of. I call that having strong values and being yeah. very aware of my value, like self-integrity, like you said, that would be an interesting project for someone to work on. There's a whole perversion of our natures, a clinical viewpoint, something wrong. You're very rigid and, and, and the, the one step away from calling us anal, and oh my God, you know that's a, that's a technical term from Freud that's been made pejorative when actually it's quite innocent for us originally. But we are people with our own beliefs and views and our hearts and our identities, and if we stand up for them enough, we're being obsessive. It's like I can't. I don't. I grew up gay too. Like yeah. to me, it's very similar. I didn't have a choice. There's nothing I could do about it. Like I. I, I couldn't change it. I had to stand up for it. I had to fight for it every time. There was nothing I could do about it. And I feel like it's the same with autism. Yeah. If I'm obsessive, then that's just how you see me. But it's not going to go away or change. That's part of who I am. Good. Yeah, it is. A, a lot of advocates um, have the advantage of the LGBTI uh, or the feminism to fall back on. What I what. I would say that um, LGBTI gay writers and thinkers and activists and feminists, women's liberation, they created all these conceptual tools that the autistic people are now inheriting and are going forward with. It's the way of seeing yourself for what you are positively and developing community and something beautiful, you know, that you are justified in being who and what you are. And you're not, there's not something wrong with that, which is just deadly for yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, that's how I remember it being for the gay thing. I, I wish they'd use it more. Like there's this reliance on clinicians and diagnosis. And that wasn't something we saw in the gay community. Like get, clinicians thought we were mental illness. And so we knew that they didn't really understand homosexuality or knew what they were talking about when it comes to us. But for some reason, the autistic community puts a lot of trust and faith in the ability of these clinicians to define them and a lot of them are neurotypical. It's like people from the outside looking in. I don't know where their authority comes from to tell us about ourselves more than we ourselves know about ourselves. That's very well put. And I think a lot of us would tend to default to academia. We want to be taken seriously by textbooks and the educational system and people uh, with qualifications. They didn't get it right <laughs> with homosexuality. I don't know why they would have any more. Like, I'm skeptical of all of that. They're, they're fumbling around and feeling around in the dark. It's constantly changing. I don't think they have any of it like definitively resolved now. I think we're better positioned to be our own voices because a lot of it, they go off of our own self-report anyway. So if, if that's what they're basing a lot of their conclusions on, 
it's coming from us and our voices. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very well said, because I love the way we meet. And what you said is the voice to so many people that I've known for all these years. And what I've been trying to sit alone and, and work out myself, you've already got it. But where did this come from? It was, I'm sure it was your innovation, your synthesis and trying to make sense of your situation positively and for something like for everyone else to share and just, okay, it's okay being what you are and I get on with your life. Yeah. You know, you got this identity, it's cool. Okay, no big deal. We are what we are. But, but there's all these forces acting, you know, in society and even medical and, and parents of very disabled children, you know. Yeah. Leave us alone. Go. I, I wish just, they would just walk away from all. Like if, if you are what you are, there's nothing wrong with it, just like being gay. And the people around you have a problem with it, just go find the people that don't and put your efforts and invest your energy there. Don't waste a lot of time on society will come around eventually. Yeah. Um, but they're so enmeshed with these systems that I, I, I worry they internalize messages from these systems um, that are really not their systems. Right. And it seems easier to just unyoke from all that and go find or create your own system that works for you with your kind of people. That is a big cliche of the people I was arguing with last year on Twitter. I don't know if you saw that. Awful organized bunch of trolls who were <laughs> destined to autism with disorder. It's like, well, what about an identity? What about the people? Get These people are getting, they're all autistic. They're getting together. They're working with each other, forming stable relationships, sharing views, and attacking anyone who they reckon was the neurodiversity movement when they're obviously neurodiversity movement themselves. And it's like, well, don't you understand? It's organic that there is neurodiversity movement. It's not just a bunch of people with some set ideas. It's everywhere. It's in the air. Yeah. I and mean, we're all neurodiverse. Like, everyone's brain is slightly unique or different. So we all have neurodiversity. It's, it's biodiversity. Absolutely. We are the neurodivergent for the neurodiverse. Everything is yeah. neurodiverse. And there's still people who can't handle the idea that, sexuality and gender are like free range you know nature is if you go and look at trees you go and look at the bloody garden it's wild it's not not like all these lines you know one thing or the other it's not binary out there it's basically the same bodies are different why can't sexualities be different i'm, I'm perfectly yeah. natural with my wife you're perfectly natural with you know human being you just happen to have a sexuality, which you're not like manifesting permanently 24-7 because you're like anyone else with the sexuality. You know what I mean? You're just a person. And, and it's, it's some people will judge you just on the basis of your sexuality. What, what, you know, what about the rest of you? And not to diminish your sexuality. You see, it's exactly what you're saying. that People, I think a lot of it's got to do with a gag reflex where you meet something that intimately isn't you and it revolts you or you react against it. Uh, and, and there's a lot of that going on with neurodiversity. There's what I used to call the tyranny of competency in our society, which I saw years before in you as autistic, you know, because <laughs> I had a really good act. But the so did you discover was, late, late in life about your own autism? It, it's quite a story. I discovered when I was 41, when I was oh. arrested in a cinema. <laughs> <laughs> It was a really bad film. That's the embarrassing bit. The Guardian weekend magazine on the internet 
October 2005. You can read the whole crazy story how my friend and I were acquitted of common assault. He got his diagnosis years later. But during the trial, my, my sister-in-law insisted I had this condition. She said, nah, don't be silly. But I got, I got diagnosed. I joined social groups and it's like, ah, 41, 41. Now I find out. So that was December 2004. February 2005, I met this little teacher and weight trainer. Uh, and, and I thought, that's too short for me. So oh. I married her two years oh. later. <laughs> and it's just been incredible. I work for the National Autistic Society. I go around training people around the country. Oh, oh my God. And, wow. and they give me, a, I just, just talk about being autistic. I say anything. What you say, I'll tell them. And it's all there. You know, that, that's what happened to me. Yeah, I don't have depression. I, I never see anything I can't survive. So I, I, I've recently been on Twitter sounding like I'm indestructible. There's nothing wrong with me. Not true. What I mean is I'm really good at getting over stuff. You've got to get the stuff to get over it. I didn't say I'm perfect. Jesus, I can hardly read things sometimes. I'm so ADHD. But I'm still able to cope. See what I'm saying? Oh. <laughs> so I'm terrible on Twitter. So, well, I haven't got a problem. Of course I've got a bloody problem. I'm just got handling it. You know? Oh, no, I think you're fine. I really appreciate you on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just trying to make sense of things. Yeah, I think we all are. I think we all are. That's why it helps talking to other autistic people, comparing notes. So when did you first find, you mentioned before, uh, when did you first find you were autistic? I was working on a crisis hotline, a volunteer hotline, and I got a call my first day, and it was from this guy who was autistic. And we talked a lot. And the more we talked, I realized that I have whatever he has. I, I don't, I, I'm sure. And I hung up the phone after it was over. And I turned to my the staff and I said, I have what that guy has. The guy just talked on the phone. I have what he has. So I started going to autistic groups, meeting other autistic people. And that's when the puzzle clicked. Like they were exactly like me. I didn't stand out anymore. I didn't feel weird or different. I felt like I was with people that... We just got each other right away. And then looking back, growing like probably in my 30s, I hung out with a lot of people that I normally wouldn't hang out with, like younger people or people out of my demographic. And I didn't really understand what held us together. But everyone around us kept putting us together. Like, you need to hang out with this person. You need to be friends with this person. We think you would get along. And now I understand why. They were autistic, too. And that explained the bond that was wow. developed. And I didn't understand at the time, but apparently other people picked up on common traits between me and these other people, and they kept trying to put us together socially. Wow. And how old were you then? Probably mid-30s. Mid-30s, But growing up, I was just the weird kid. I was just, I was gifted, and I went to a gifted school, but a lot of them were neurotypical, so I was like the weird, even among the gifted people, I was the weird kid, but I just put it down to like that's what gifted people are. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. My father found out through me when he was 73. Oh, wow. But he was kind of drowned in his conditions by then, but he still found out, yeah, you know, at, the, at the end of it. And Did it help? Like, for, like, did it help looking back at their life and helping to explain certain anomalies or certain social situations that didn't make sense at the time? Well, it may, yes, yes. But as for actually going, it didn't as far as going forwards. Oh. Because they had such a technique and a personality that it didn't 
figure because they just did what they've always been doing. But in the past, as far as explaining relationships yeah. with others, you're right. Yeah, my dad had a brilliant technique when he was younger, so that was all right. It was just when, but at the time he found out in his 70s, it was problematic. That was all right because his children were like middle-aged men. <laughs> so he could handle it, you know. It got pretty interesting at that point. Yeah, I mean, he had Parkinson's dementia and he was neurodiverse. Oh. There was something on, you know. He was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but that was all right because I could relate to what was happening. But then he, it turned out he had about three or four tools in his workshop, his business workshop. He only needed one. He'd have like three or four. I mean, at least we knew what it was about. But Yeah, it's an interesting question you ask us here, but... The resolution of past issues. Yeah, it's it's helped. It has helped. Do you find that yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it explained. It's like the unified field theory. It explains every single detail of my life that was confusing at the time. Every weird social situation, weird reactions people had to me throughout my life that I didn't understand because I thought I was doing something completely normal. Yeah. That lens, all of that makes sense and comes into focus. And it perspectivizes it, too. Now it's not as catastrophic. I can understand what it is, and then I can adjust now in the future for it. Yeah. And it doesn't have the same effect that it did, like the social trauma effect that it had in the past. Right. Because as a gay person, you'd have a huge, your generation would have a huge resource of support people have been through the same thing and gay historians now i mean in britain you come to london you're like so but you tell people you're gay to start yawning yeah who are you you know yeah. it doesn't matter <laughs> i fought for that world i fought for a world where it would eventually be very boring I know, I, like it wouldn't even cause attention good because <laughs> yeah. many of us and are i, I do draw on that i apply to the author it, i have several identities and being gay gave me the skill set it helped me develop a skill set to apply to all of my other identities. So now uh, coming out as autistic is the same as coming out as gay mm. or coming out as gifted or a Satanist, or I'm also Cajun from Louisiana. So when we leave Louisiana, we run into all of this cultural friction. So whatever identity I have, it works the same way. Like the dynamic is the same of just being yourself, being open. I live openly as everything. Yeah. So I, I take what I learned as a gay person and I apply that to autism and the rest of my identities. We we have to fight. I mean, we don't even want to. We're, we're technically introverts. We're just ordinary human beings. You just want to live a bloody life. You get put into these situations. And next yes. thing you know, you're either permanently in the closet or if you're going to be honest, like you describe, you've got to make a stand. And yeah. you care about people. You love I didn't people. know how not to. Like, I didn't know there was a choice to not. I didn't know. Like, I didn't know I could do anything other than be myself. It, yeah. So what could you do but set up social groups and care about other people? Because, you know, if you can't find the environment in which you can be yourself and other people aren't being allowed to do that. That's what I'm trying to help people do. And and it is confu it's the social confusion. It It totally throws my brain into a spin when I think I'm around normal people in a normal situation all of a sudden this weird stuff happens communication starts breaking down people start having weird reactions that i don't understand and i used to internalize all that but now that i understand the autism dynamic it, i internalize it less like i, I understand oh, okay that's just the autism it's a double empathy problem where we're communicating across several layers of 
yes. I guess, distance from each other. Yeah. Point is, it gives you a sense of how close you are now at your age and through me to how it started for autistic people. You know, because because with this lineage of connection, all these people are still going. I met Steve Silverman. Uh, is a very nice man. Indeed, he came to speak at the National Autistic Society, and what he told me that uh, we we have taken NASA Autistics own oh. NASA <laughs> National Aeronautics Space Administration <laughs> and totally occupied Silicon Valley. You know, and there's all this positivity, it's all this community. The idea that you and I are part of a tribe, and we have yeah. been scattered. Yeah. Yeah, My friend from Tel like Aviv was telling me that in the last podcast. He was on this very screen a few days ago, Chen Gashuni. And he says that he, he traveled all over the world. He's a globetrotter before he found out he was autistic. And then he discovered he's autistic. And he does all this translation. And it's like, well, wherever I go, I meet people and they relate. You know, and they have this, this positive experience. And I thought it was a disorder. How can you have long term, stable, loving, positive relationships and abilities from something that's a disorder? I don't yeah. get it. Yeah, it's it's that simple. Yeah. Well, it'd be great to have a way to to bring everybody together, like to start connecting people with each other. Yeah. Well, not not everyone has the heart. I really I really appreciate you for that very much. That you have a clear, positive motive to bring together people in community. I'm I'm Cajun. That's what we do. Like we don't have nothing better than to bring people together and have a good time. But really, um, it started with the pandemic, and I the job I was doing was in person. I used to do groups and and one on one and organize like communities. Mm. I worked for a disability agency. Okay. And when the pandemic hit, I had to find another way to do that. So I discovered Zoom, and then mm. I started finding a way to transfer that online. And I realized, well you can zoom with people from all over the world. Like there's no reason that autistic people can't start connecting and finding each other globally now through technology. It started, um, the late 1990s. I was 2005, went to the Autoscape conference, which was based on outreach in America. And Jim Sinclair was there, uh, who is sexless in, um, in Gender and also has no interest in sexuality. He's a fascinating man, you know, and very funny, very witty guy. Uh, and he was explaining how he wrote uh, Don't Mourn for Us, uh, a very famous speech I narrated, I narrated, which you can, you can find online. But originally there was uh, chat rooms and chat groups online. And then there was the info, God, social media. <laughs> Ooh. And the carry on there. And then people started fighting each other and trying to traumatize autistic people off it because they think that's the only expression of neurodiversity. When we both know it's just like a kaleidoscope. It's a spectrum literally all over the world. All these different yeah. good, bad, neutral. There's all this neurodiversity people everywhere. That's right. We're part of the world. So all that happened. And I got involved certainly last year as a kind of an extreme sport because I was doing a lot of bus rides and train rides. And there were these crazy people trolling people like myself. So I started trying to reason with them. Uh, and it was hilarious because it was kind of my seminar, developed my skills, you see. And it, yeah, there was a lot of people, mainly uh, in Britain and America, doing this this really uh, pathetic carry on. Over-intellectual developed, under-emotionally developed. And you, you can tell, you know, and they just ignored you and went around in circles. And basically, it's kind of like when you talk to Christians and you try to make them think. Oh, mm-hmm. Just default, default, default. And you're like, 
but can you expand that? Can you think about, you know, what God created, including the devil? I imagine. I don't know. Can you tell us about your, your um, satanic faith? I've, I was raised Catholic. I've been a Satanist my whole life. I just didn't know the yeah. name for it. I'm, I'm very anti-authoritarian. Some of it probably comes from the autism. I hate being told what to do. I hate being herded. I hate being policed and groomed and all that. Yeah. So um, I was an atheist most of my life. Once I started studying science, it just made sense. In fact, Susie and the Banshee, she was one of the people that kind of helped me break all that. Yeah. And um, so I just was an atheist my whole life. And then I discovered that Satanists, we're non-theistic. We're yeah. like closer to secular humanist. But it mm -hmm. gives me that sense of spirituality and aesthetic and, and ethos that was missing from atheism. Atheism just seemed kind of generic. It seemed kind of like a non a non-thing to be. And Satanism is, is more of a positive form of spirituality yep. where I actually can do something with it. It's it's a new religion, so it's very creative. So everyone, it's scope to kind of create and build your own version of it. And I've studied Romanticism in classical literature my whole life. So it draws on that. It draws on Milton, Paradise Lost. We use the figure of Satan for, um, it's all about individuality, self-empowerment, personal freedom. So yeah. Those are those are I have strong values around that censorship, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it was a natural fit. Like the satanic ethos fits me naturally because I've been doing that my whole life. I'm a rebel. I was a punk. Absolutely. Well, that was a, that we were discussing that earlier. That that's how I started as a first generation Liverpool punk rocker in the late seventies. Oh, really? When you, it was actually a dodgy thing to do. You buy, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, original copy, you know. And they came on the television. We had Top of the Pops in England. We saw the adverts doing Gary Gilmore's eyes. And we're like, oh. and my mother my mother said, they look as the name suggests. Brilliant line, you know. A family friend had been given No More Heroes and Rattus Norvegicus by the Stranglers. We eyed these albums up. And, and now, because they're just genius. I've shaken hands with Jeff Black and I met Greenfield, oh, you know. I wish I could just reach out and touch you. How old uh, were you then? I was um, 16 in 1980, so I was oh. about 14 when I discovered the Diamond Dogs and Ziggy Stardust album uh -huh. by Bowie. Yeah. The Diamond Dogs was like, oh, that was it. Sweet Thing Candidate, Sweet Thing Reprise, bang! Oh, my God. And then everything else was built on that. And then the, the whole thing about the, about never mind the bollocks, you know, the holidays in the sun. Oh, my God. <laughs> And then X-ray specs, of course, very important polystyrene. Suxi and the Banshees, Hong Kong Garden. It's yeah. down the road. I'm in Southeast London, a few miles down the road. Oh, is the Bromley. restaurant. And the, and the take, yeah, the restaurant's there. I don't know oh, if it's man. still there. But that's where it was. The Bromley <laughs> contingency, though, you know, know about that, of course. They were all down the road, you know. The Bromley crew. Oh my God! But that's oh, Suxi, yeah. that voice, and that song, old Susan singing. That was just like extraordinary yeah and i saw on the um download festival was it one of these festivals about five six years ago or something same time i saw morrissey and i tell you what he was on i missed the bloody new york dolls oh. ah man i think i saw suxy and missed the new york dolls i never forgiven myself it's a bit like now but they sort of half of and the rest of them sort of got together oh, where's johnny and they tried to they played. <laughs> Morrissey got them too. And then, of course, I saw Morrissey, the king of the you know, mysterious sexuality. I wonder. And he comes on stage. Hello, everybody. You know, seen him a few times, Morrissey. You know, oh. I had to be. 
Very controversial figure now. I'm sorry, you're just gonna. I know. I never saw Devo. I could have seen Devo. Early 80s Killing Joke, of course. I met Jazz Coleman. I've yeah. had a drink with Coles. But I tell you, the best one is Ray Gange, the Rude Boy film from The Clash. Ray Gange, who's the central figure of Rude Boy, he came to see my solo show where I turned the audience autistic, the Gorilla Aspies, a neurotransformational uh, show, a neurodiversificational show. I give him a hug and everything. You know, it's only a little venue. And he bombed down and said, hello, Paul, I'll come to see your show. I'm like, oh, no. Fuck, it's the, it's the fifth man crash. You know what I'm saying? I had to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh. So all this is going on in my life. I'm a bit old for it now. <laughs> oh, well, stars are shooting out of my eyes right now. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Faith. <laughs> all about love and faith, isn't it? Uh, and Jazz wrote a book called Letters from Cytheria. Do you know about that? Killing no. Joe, he's been a student of theology all his life, and he's written this book. You would love this book. It's all... What's it called? Uh, um, Letters from Cytheria. And, it, and he's, he's been studying Kabbalah, the occult. Oh, I studied Kabbalah. Big Alistair Crowley fans. You know, they're always going on about Crowley's writing. That noted <laughs> character. And it's very difficult to get the book now, but I managed, I managed to get it and got Jazz. He'd signed all the books, so I said to Jazz, well, could you put two Paul in it? <laughs> so it's <laughs> personalised. What happens, I went to the South Bank at the National Film Theatre on the Thames, which is our big, like, mecca for film we've got. I don't know if you know about the National Film Theatre. And they showed the Death and Resurrection show. And with your interest in philosophy, theology... A cult, you, you'd never get over this film. If you watch the trailer for it, you'd understand. It's, it's all about, you know, the band started on a Wednesday afternoon with a ritual, and it went from there. They were always doing huge amounts of reading between them, and then they started killing Joe, you know. Coleman's hilarious, and he is bipolar and ADHD, and he says that in the first few pages of the book, he's autistic. Absolutely autistic, and and the resonance I have with Killing Joke's music you know, remains to this day. Uh, but he's yeah very interesting to look into. I forget who else is is on the spectrum. It's, it's a bit. Different. I think there's a lot of neurodiversity in punk. For for yeah. me, it helped with the the energy, like getting that energy. I think of people like um, what's his name, Ian Curtis from Joy Division. The the dancing he did, the weird body movement. I'm fascinated with performers that move in odd ways because i relate to that the guy from simple minds kind of has yep. that weird yep. dance style so part of punk the draw for punk was for me was seeing some of that i didn't recognize it at the time for what it was but i'm sure it was the neurodiversity stimming yeah the stimming so curtis was was doing that because his neurodiversity was um he had epilepsy of course yeah and whether or not, I don't know if he was on the spectrum. I, I knew a woman who met him once and talked to him for a few hours and said he was just destroyed. He was medication or he was depressed. He looked like he was wiped out. He talked about the weather and he was ruined as a person. And there's an extraordinary interview with uh, Peter Hook on oh. YouTube, which you must see. He's interviewed by us. Oh, my God, it's an interview. I saw the movie, the documentary they did. And um, what's David Byrne is definitely on the spectrum. He's he's admitted it. He's totally there. David Byrne, yeah. Oh, yes. Have you seen seen Control? Because that Control was made by Anton Gorbjinbim, however you say it, who knew them. Oh, is that a documentary? It's a drama in black and white about Joy Division. It's a film. 
Oh yeah, Control. Yeah, that's the one I saw. Because I saw that, and then the title's finished, and the lights came out in the cinema. My wife had walked out, and she had to come back in. Because I'm still in the seat. I'm like that. <laughs> My wife's like, what's the matter? I'm like, the film's finished. The lights are out. I'm like, because it was perfect. <laughs> it was so good all the way through. I thought, at the end, it'll be rubbish. It can't be. And it was perfect. I'm like, yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw a New Order in 1985 in oh. the and then I called them a Glastonbury 1987. I, I have all the good shows and bands <laughs> over there. We have Lou Reed. Like, Lou Reed was significant for me. Um, I relate a lot to his biography and background. Did you meet him? No, but I did meet Laurie Anderson once. Ah, I was once threatened by Lou Reed. And it what was, did he do? Oh, that's so cool. I'm jealous. Cool. I saw him in 2002 on the Barbican Centre in London. And then afterwards, we're all outside. And he comes out. Give me something to write with. I'm no read. I'm going to look like No. And every now and again, he let it slip that he was actually quite sweet. And the woman gets his autograph. He's like, Ooh, you know, and he's putting it on. And, and somebody says, oh, get my camera picture with Lou Reed. And I point the camera. And Lou Reed looks right over me and goes, no flash photography. And I, whoa. Uh. <laughs> take the picture of put your finger over the flash and I'm like oh he threatened me and at the end he was trying to get in the van and he's walking away I went did you enjoy the show Mr. Reed?" and I heard sure oh god <laughs> and he was gone <laughs> and he was his voice I bought the Raven album terrible voice you see him live perfect and he was really funny did yeah live? oh he's such a sense of humor. So funny, you know, and he, yep. he's playing Sweet Jane's. You know, listen to this, you know, three chords, one guitar. Anyone could do that. How is that, students? You know, and he's just really, really cool. It's Tai Chi Master in his pajamas. Oh, it was a brilliant thing. It was a thing, you know. I remember the day he died. I was, I was um, performing in a cafe. I was very moved, actually. I think I did a piece. And bloody hell. These people, you know, Florian Schneider died this year. Of course. Oh. From Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk. And of course, Ralph Hooter is probably on the spectrum. And so one what? of the guys from Noi died too. Right. That's a bloody shame, that. We lost Hugh Cole. Uh, no, we lost uh, Dave Greenfield, the keyboard player, the strings. But poor old uh, Florian. Oh, it's really unhappy. That, man, I didn't know about that one. Yeah, yeah, Bowie hit me hard and Lou hit me hard. 10th of December. It was the 10th of January every year. Oh, when I lost Bowie, did you, I, I went into five days of personal grief. Wow. I don't know where it came from. I couldn't stop. I get choked off thinking about it. Five days, I was tearful. And I was reporting on, on Facebook. I said, I don't, know, I don't know where this has come from. I only saw him once in 1983 in the Sirius Moonlight Tour. But the loss of Bowie, I said, Jesus, not him, for God's sake. You know, yeah, I totally, totally feel you. Yeah, we're not supposed to do that, are we? We don't have any of No. Oh, my God. The generations are moving on. It's... Yep. We had two shrines in London. We had one in Brixton over the road from the London Underground train station, which is still, there's a big mural there. And the second shrine was outside of uh, Key West, I think it's called, the studio. In the cover of Iggy Pot, of, of Ziggy Stardust and Spice from Mars, he's posing with his guitar in the street. And there's a sign. Oh, yeah, that, that, that street scene. Yeah, that's the, the studio. Where he recorded it. Oh, cool. That's off Regent Street, which is dead center of everything. Really expensive shops, you know, famous. 
of the central London and found it, and, and they they did a shrine there as well, you know. Is it still there? Are there shrines still up? No, no. Key West is, is just a doorway now, but um, to this day, the the Bowie mural's still there, and you get this sense of a young man with a slightly spaced out look, you know, because at the time he it took off with Ziggy, he said that this is happening to me in interviews. Like every day, this is accumulating. It was hitting him. What was happening? You know, this disorientation effect. Oh. He was only human. He was this lad from down the road in Beckenham, a few miles again, a few miles around now. It's, it's funny how this part of London is so significant, you know. But uh, oof, oof, I, I don't know yeah. if Bowie was near Divergent or not. I'm assuming he was, but he certainly opened the door for that kind of self-expression for like a lot of neurodiverse people. I didn't think he was, but Robert Fripp, on the other hand, there's been oh. reports about Fripp. I don't think you know Eno was near. Eno, yeah, I'm Eno. I'm sure. Robert Fripp, some of the things, you know, some of the things, oh, Fripp. He's married to Toya Wilcox. Have you seen the films they've been making? No. Robert and Toya's Sunday Lunch. They're on YouTube. They're just, at one point, Fripp turns up in tights and a tutu and does ballet with Toya. (laughs) Oh, I think I did. Now that you mention it, I I think (laughs) it came across my feed somewhere. A few months ago. We seem to be believed. <laughs> I can't believe yeah, this, this is the man who played feedback to get the lead guitar on Heroes and he's in Tutu. I, I managed to see them all except Dino. I saw Patty Smith perform oh. retrospective for, uh, what's his name? Uh, William Burroughs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the South Bank. And then Fripp himself did a fundraiser. Where he was playing his guitar on the stage of a place in North London, he just left it rolling, Frippertronics, and came out with fruit. Uh-huh. And, and he offered me some fruit, and I'm like, oh, Fripp, hello, and he just walks off. You know, saw so Bowie, of course, and then Lou Reed, and who else? Iggy came on before the Sex Pistols. Oh, Osterberg, yeah, that man. Yeah. No, you have all the best music. You got Iggy, you got Lou, don't worry. America has done very well. I'd still love to see Jello Biafro get together with the old Dan Kennedys. I wish to God I'd seen them, because that's oh, yeah. really their music. I've listened to it a lot this time in my life. Absolutely brilliant. And I, man, st- I, I still want to listen to music all day long now. Yeah, yeah, it's all love. It's it's all love. I think it's it's something. I suspect something very, very strong in your life that this. Oh you know, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, I was a huge. That's that was my escape growing up. Like that's what got me through a lot. Like being able to escape into that world. And I'm sure it was the neurodiversity, like the yeah. originality, the creativity, all of that about the music was drawing me. It was the difference. Yeah. I don't know anything about Cajun. What is what is Cajun down from Louisiana? Uh, Cajun music or Cajun oh, culture in general? Culture. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of a gumbo. We we take yeah. different cultures and we kind of synthesize them into our own thing. Like our music is the accordion is German. The yeah. fiddle I think is Irish, maybe French. The triangle is Spanish. The rhythms are. Yeah. And our food is the same way. It's like Native American, African, um, French, all kind of mixed together in our own blend. We were originally from Nova Scotia in Canada. Uh, and we got kicked out, ethnically cleansed, really. The British came along and 
kicked us out and we yeah. ended up settling in South Louisiana and yeah. our culture kind of transformed along the way. And it still is. But one of the, the strengths of Cajun culture, I think, is that ability to synthesize different influences and cultures and mm. and create something new out of it. Wow. Well, We're also is- very anti-authoritarian, so I think that plays <laughs> into my Satanism as well. We don't have a, like the French language has a formal you and an informal you, and the Cajun language only has the informal. Somehow the formal address got evolved out of it. So everybody's kind of on the same level. There's no there's no way to linguistically rank people. So we all kind of take each other as as equal. It's very like Liverpool. Once you go to Liverpool, there's this anarchy because it's half Irish and half oh. New York because of the diaspora and all the people, you know, the culture. It's just a state of anarchy. You walk through the streets, anyone will just come up to you and talk to you. You know, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's kind of like that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I take I, that I, as my norm. So when I move into other, with the autism, when I move into other cultures, like Anglo-Saxon cultures yeah. that don't work that way, I think I can just talk to everybody. I can just go up and start conversations and talk. Like, there's a lot of rules around how to, when to talk, how to say something, what language to use. And we don't have any of that. We're, we're very socially relaxed about that kind of stuff because we, we want to talk and hear the other people. So it, it, I think it plays into the autism, too. Like being Cajun and autistic is different from being Anglo-Saxon and autistic. There's some cultural differences that I think the autism modifies or exaggerates. I really, I really relate to that because I don't know about social rules either. All I do is get myself into trouble. I've never stopped relating like I'm back in Liverpool where people just talk at you. And I'm the same thing. I'm the same thing as you're describing. You seem completely normal to me. Like, I feel like we're just talking. We're just like two people sitting and talking. There's, it's, it's organic and it's going somewhere. There's, why do we need a bunch of rules? I know. It's ridiculous. It's just, I don't know. Well, that's the English society has improved a great deal, but I, I'm still, I'm always going to be regarded as weird, mad, crazy, and then people love me. I don't know. I'm always called Well, that's that. straight. Embrace it. Uh, well, I, I have, I've kind of run out of time now, but Jeff has been quite an honor to meet you. Oh, you too. I think you're going to do a lot of good for people. We should keep in touch, Jeff. I, I hope so. Yes, absolutely. I'll reach out anytime. Hit me up. So your work is going to go on. You're going to develop a social group in Seattle. It's going to be virtual. Right now we have a Discord. I'm working with a few other autistic people. We have a Discord server. Um, it's on my Twitter profile. It's at PrimalHex at Twitter. And I have a Google site with some information. But the Discord is going to be the main kind of home base. But we do Zoom meetings. We're going to start weekly Zoom groups and that kind of stuff. So any autistic people that are looking to create community or are working on projects and want that kind of creative support and feedback, um, they're welcome. Send them my way. Do you know Alex Plank? No. Oh, you should get in touch with Alex. Is he on Twitter? Oh, yes, he is indeed. Alex Plank. I think it's A-L-E-X-P-L-A-N-K. I'm going to have to send you loads of links and recommend lots of people to you. Uh, Yeah, because I'm looking to connect. Yep. We're also working, it's in the works, it may or may not happen, but an in-person like community, um, we're looking at some property and forming some kind of in-person collective. We're also going to start on the Discord educational and tutoring for 
Mm -hmm. ADHD and people with learning needs so that other autistic people can help tutor and help them with like learning strategies. So we're going to have all, all kind of support. We have a peer support channel currently for mental health. Mm. This is fantastic. It's, it's like, it's an honor because I feel like I've caught something big just when it starts. And I hope I can. Oh. <laughs> well, it's small, but hopefully we're growing. All we're right. out there for people who need it. So find us if you need us. I'll send you what I can anyway. Really good to talk to you, Jeff. You too. Thank you, and uh, keep in touch. I will. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care.